Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Summer, or actually any holiday season, is such a delightful time, isn't it? A chance to take a break from the daily grind and enjoy life to the fullest. However, all the fun aside, we often find ourselves taking a break from our health routine too. Late nights, irregular eating habits, and indulgence becomes the norm. But when the vacation season winds down, it's time to get back on track with our health. Although it may not be easy, it's essential for our well-being. If you struggle to return to your health routine, I have a valuable lesson to share. Focus on majors. Prioritize healthy eating, exercise, and above all, quality sleep. Just one interesting fact about sleep to mention, drinking more than two servings of alcohol per day for men and more than one serving per day for women can decrease sleep quality by 39.2%. Sleep Foundation survey reports not even mentioning all the indulgent food and late night effects. And sleep is the key to your body's rejuvenation and repair process. It controls hunger and weight loss hormones, boosts energy levels, and impacts countless other vital functions. Good night's sleep will improve your well-being much more than anything else. Sleep is your major to focus on. That's why I recommend you start taking magnesium daily, but not any supplement. Get Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. Magnesium Breakthrough contains all seven forms of magnesium designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. The sleep benefits are truly remarkable. And once your sleep is optimized, you'll find it much easier to tackle all the other major aspects of your health. Trust me, it's a game changer. Visit magbreakthrough.com backslash justingredients and enter code justingredients10. Again, that's justingredients10 for 10% off any order. This special offer is only available at magbreakthrough.com backslash justingredients. Dr. Kalia Waddles is a naturopathic doctor, certified functional medicine practitioner, and founder of Functional Fertility. As an educator, podcaster, speaker, and clinician, Dr. Waddles combines cutting-edge science with treasured traditional wisdom, applying a systems biology approach to discover the root cause of fertility struggles. With a deep commitment to advancing the field of functional medicine and improving patient outcomes, Her patient-centered approach helps individuals cultivate abundant health for pregnancy and beyond. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I am really excited for our guest. It is Dr. Kalia Waddles, and I know so many of you listeners are dealing with infertility, and I think that's why you guys follow me, is just for any hope that you can find some answer that will help you. I think you're following for maybe some nutrition advice and learning what better beauty products are out there. And so I wanted to bring an expert on who knows everything about fertility and infertility. And so thank you, Dr. Waddles, so much for being here today. I'm so happy to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, will you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, things like that? I'd love to. So I am a naturopathic doctor by training. Following my naturopathic program, I then sought further postdoctoral training in functional medicine. So I am certified as a functional medicine practitioner through the Institute for Functional Medicine. And through my naturopathic training, I had two babies during my doctoral program. 
and had this transformational experience into motherhood. My love for fertility and preconception care was really born out of my own experience into parenthood. So I spent my clinical years circulating through my local fertility clinics and learning with the reproductive endocrinologists and sitting in with them with their intakes and in the process of doing IVF and IUI. And I really learned how functional medicine, lifestyle medicine could support fertility patients no matter where they were on their fertility journey. And now we're here and I have my private practice, functional fertility, where I support patients who are trying to conceive for the first time. They're doing advanced reproductive technology, or they're just thinking about how they can protect their fertility into the future. That's what I love to do and to talk about. Well, I know that you're an expert and know that you have your own practice and things like that. So I'm excited to ask you some questions and maybe we can help some listeners today. Let's just start at the basics. Can you just say or define what infertility is and maybe why so many are struggling with it today? It seems like it's a really big problem these days. And is it bigger or it's just always been this way and now social media just makes it seem like it's bigger? I mean, that one's hard to tell, but I, I'll define infertility because I think that's a helpful place to start. And it actually has recently shifted a bit. So historically, infertility was defined as not being able to conceive after a minimum one year of unprotected intercourse that was happening at the right time. Just recently, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has actually expanded that definition to include anyone who needs medical intervention, including but not limited to the use of donor sperm or donor embryos in order to achieve a successful pregnancy. So now we have this widening lens. And the reason why that is important is because when patients want to access care, I'll give you an example. Maybe they've been trying for nine months. They know they're timing intercourse effectively they're, no one's taking birth control, like they're doing all things right. They've been trying for nine months. They'll go to their primary care doc and say, hey, I really need some support. And that doc might say, well, if we look at this definition of infertility, you've not been trying for 12 months yet. So just keep doing what you're doing. And that's pretty limiting, right? When we right. know that there's all of these factors that can drive problems in our fertility and increase ability to have a healthy pregnancy. So this is where I think the functional medicine model really shines because at any point in that timeline, before someone even tries for the first time, maybe they've been trying for three months, maybe they've been trying for six months, I am going to take a look at the map of their entire body systems. So I use a tool that's called the functional medicine matrix. And this allows me to catalog and capture and curate a patient's symptoms, diagnoses they've had, labs that they've had done before. And I populate that on a map of their body systems that looks at their assimilation. So that's their digestive function, how they can utilize nutrients. I look at their defense and repair mechanisms. So that's their immune function and their ability to fight inflammation. I look at their energy production, so that's mostly cellular energy. I look at their biotransformation and elimination mechanisms, so how do they engage with toxins in their world. Their transport mechanisms, so their cardiovascular and lymphatic system. I look at their communication strategies, so their hormones and their neurotransmitters. And then the structural integrity of their body, that's big structures like their organs, their skeletal system, all the way down to tiny structures like their cell membranes. So as you can see, there's much more to look at here when we take this holistic approach than just asking the question, have you been trying for 12 months or not? Wow, that is so a that's, lot. That's infertility in a nutshell. And to answer the second part of your question about why, why is this happening? Why do we see so much infertility? 
I think this is multifaceted and we can definitely talk about all of this, but I think it's a combination of exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals, which I know you talk about a lot, the things that we are engaging with that in our environment. I think that there's more in our lifestyle that drives inflammation and oxidative stress, which are two components that I see are most detrimental to optimal fertility. I think it's us living out of balance with our natural circadian rhythm. We know that our, for example, hormonal, our reproductive hormones are really driven by our light and darkness cues. And, you know, we're in this world of artificial lighting and we're staying up until midnight and we're just really out of sync with those natural cues. And then stress, like who isn't stressed? I think that that's certainly playing a role. So not only is it more visible because of social media, but I think we also have more drivers that are impacting our fertility. So interesting. And I love that you said all those things that you look at when you're helping someone with infertility, because it is frustrating going to a doctor. I know for uh, me, my sisters couldn't get pregnant for a long time and they would go to the doctor and they'd say, sorry, you're not at a year. There's nothing we can do. And they would go home frustrated and just go try again, you know, and there are so many different parts that you're talking about. And so out of those parts, like that's a lot to discuss. So maybe are there key factors that can help influence fertility? So I think that the most important things I will think about are hormones, inflammation, and oxidative stress. Because really the recipe, if you will, for optimal fertility is a healthy egg that we actually ovulate, right? A healthy sperm and a receptive endometrium. So the endometrium is that innermost lining of the uterus. And that lining, that endometrium has to accept a blastocyst, which is an early stage embryo. That's where your blastocyst will implant. So healthy egg, healthy sperm, receptive endometrium, that's how we get a pregnancy. And there's some common themes that connect these pieces. One of those being hormones. In the reproductive space, we're often looking at hormones like estrogen, testosterone, progesterone for women, but also important to think about some hormones that I think are underappreciated, thyroid hormone, other testosterone-like hormones, for example, DHEA is a big one. Even insulin is a hormone. So hormones are a big category, but that's something that really needs a thorough assessment that I'll do with blood work. Another theme here that connects all of these is chronic inflammation because inflammation can worsen our egg and sperm quality. It can make our endometrium less receptive. So that's one area I'm exploring with couples, no matter where they are on their preconception planning journey, both measuring chronic inflammation with blood tests, and then also trying to do some uncovering of where the sources of chronic inflammation is. Is it, do they have periodontal disease and do they need to get to the dentist? Is there something going on with their gut? Do they have food sensitivities? We can talk about some of those sources, but chronic inflammation is a big one. And then oxidative stress. So oxidative stress is this imbalance between compounds that can damage our DNA and compounds like antioxidants that are protective against that cellular damage. And it's pretty easy for us in the modern contemporary world to get out of balance because we have increased oxidative stress from things like toxic exposures, elevated blood sugar, things like lots of fried foods. So this can again lead to damage of our egg and sperm cells. And the part that I will close this statement with is that much of this is lifestyle driven. So I know when we start talking about, oh, all these things ca that can affect our fertility, it can feel a little doom and gloom and a little overwhelming, but I'll, I'll anchor into the fact that 
we have so much control over many of these things and it's nothing fancy. It's simple lifestyle changes that can really help us. There is so much that we can do when we start looking into these factors and start really engaging in sustainable behavior change. Okay. So that leads me to this question then, because you talk about modifiable lifestyle factors on your page. And so is this what you're talking about? That some of these are lifestyle changes that you can change that aren't that hard? Absolutely. And lifestyle change is really the foundation of functional medicine, of naturopathic medicine. So I am going to address certain lifestyle factors with every single person I see. There's a really a set of lifestyle factors that I'm always going to address. And these are the action items that we can work on today. No matter what your labs look like, it requires no supplements, no medications. And the beauty of it is that this can really be customized to each patient, really each condition, including fertility. So I'll give you kind of an overview of the most common modifiable lifestyle factors that I'm addressing sleep and relaxation, right? Who doesn't need to work on their relaxation strategies? But sleep is a big one. I mentioned how our hormonal production is related to our light and darkness cues. So having this really regular bedtime can support our circadian rhythm. So I always tell everyone, we're going to work with your life. If you have a job that requires you to work a little later, or you've got children like I do, and you have a whole bedtime routine, that's fine. Let's just find consistency there so that we can start training your brain for what type of pattern to expect. And we know, I tell patients in an ideal setting, we're getting to sleep before 11 p.m. in a room that is so dark that if you hold your hand in front of your face, you can't see it. Dark, dark, dark. Blackout curtains if you need to. And this is going to help to support our our own melatonin production. Melatonin is a really powerful antioxidant for our egg cells. And then when we're pregnant for our placenta, it's Mm. actually really interesting. There are studies looking at ovarian follicles, which are essentially the egg sacs that our eggs are swimming around in. And they've extracted fluid from those follicles. And what they have seen is that there's high concentrations of melatonin. That's probably one of the most important antioxidants protecting our egg cells from cellular damage. So Super important and great if we can just support that with a healthy bedtime, healthy sleep routine. Interesting. Very interesting. And then the next one is exercise. And we know that maintaining healthy blood sugar, healthy insulin levels can both protect our cardiovascular health and can help us to ovulate more regularly. And whenever I'm having these conversations about fertility, I always want to make the point that yes, It's about getting pregnant. It's about having a healthy and safe pregnancy, but it's also about cultivating abundant health that gives you longevity in your fertility and in your lifetime so that you can enjoy this family you've worked so hard to build. So while we're working on fertility, we're also reducing risk for chronic disease and exercise is one way that we're doing that. The other piece about exercise is that it's encouraging blood flow through our pelvic region. And I heard a couple of years ago, I was listening to this brilliant reproductive endocrinologist speak, and he said, the health of our ovaries is actually just a function of ovarian blood flow through the capillaries of our ovarian tissue, because that blood is coming in. It's nourishing our ovaries with these amazing nutrients. It's removing waste products. So gentle exercise, even yoga, tai chi, stretching, these are excellent ways to get that healthy blood flow through our ovarian tissue. That's really interesting. It's so interesting. And there's some other things I think about for um, circulation, acupuncture, 
reflexology, massage, um, but exercise I think is something that we're doing most days, even going for a walk. That's going to help with your blood supply. So exercise is a big one or just mindful movement, restorative movement, if it feels better to think about it that way. Nutrition, a whole big topic that we could probably spend an hour talking about just that. But in a nutshell, for most of my patients, I'm focusing on nutrient-dense foods, food sources of antioxidants, correcting nutritional deficiencies, and then reducing exposures to endocrine-disrupting chemicals in our food supply. So that's kind of the pillar of my nutritional support, but happy to talk more specifics on nutrition too. Stress. Stress is a big one. We know that stress coping mechanisms are so important, and there's some unique ways that stress can impact our fertility. So that's something I'm addressing with everyone. And then the one that I think is forgotten about often is relationships and our, both our romantic relationships, our sense of community, our sense of social support. Um, this is something that's so important to cultivate when, when we're trying to conceive because of the way that it can reduce stress, but also building those networks so that if you struggle, if you need help, if you need support, that's there for you. And then hopefully you're going to have a wonderful pregnancy and bring home a healthy baby. And you're going to have this postpartum time frame where we're going to need that community support again. So that is kind of a summary of the lifestyle factors that I'm addressing with everyone. I love that because many doctors won't address those. So I'm so glad that you're doing that and there's doctors out there. So earlier you had talked about three things that you look at, like the hormonal balance, the inflammation and the oxidative stress. And so let's just talk about those. So let's talk about the hormonal imbalance because you hear a lot of that on social media. If you know, oh, I'm struggling to get pregnant because of hormonal imbalances. Well, that could mean 10 million different things. So when you're talking about hormonal imbalances, is it that they're too high in estrogen, too low in progesterone? What is it typically? Like you said, it could be 10 million different things. But when we're talking about fertility, we tend to look at estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Like I said, those are the typical hormones. But I like to look at patterns. Like what kind of patterns am I seeing in my practice in terms of hormones? So I would love to share kind of the three, I would say, most common hormonal imbalance patterns that I'm seeing in practice. And you already mentioned the first one. It's low progesterone or what we might call luteal phase dysfunction. So if anybody's listening and they need a refresher on this, the luteal phase is the second half of your menstrual cycle. It happens from the time that you ovulate until your next period starts. So it's the latter half of your cycle. And progesterone is the predominant hormone during your luteal phase. Now, if we want to have a, a healthy luteal phase, I usually say I want to have this be at least 12 days. Closer to 14 is optimal, but at least 12 days. And adequate progesterone during this phase is really crucial to maintain a pregnancy. And when we see low progesterone, this could be that you're not producing enough progesterone to begin with. So I'll take us back to the follicle that I mentioned. That's the egg sac within the ovary that our egg cell is swimming in. When we ovulate, the egg cell bursts from that egg sac. That's ovulation. And that sac becomes a structure that's called the corpus luteum. And the corpus luteum then starts pumping out progesterone. And this progesterone maintains our endometrium. So again, the endometrium is the inner lining of the uterus. It prevents it from shedding like we do on our period. And so that little blastocyst, which is that early embryo, can implant 
and can proliferate until that placenta will take over and start making progesterone. So our corpus luteum is really responsible for making that progesterone. And if we, let's say, in the first half of our cycle, if we're super stressed, if we don't have enough antioxidants, if our thyroid hormone is low, if our DHEA is low, then we're not going to have a really robust corpus luteum to make all that progesterone. So we're going to see low progesterone in the luteal phase. So I tell patients after they ovulate, I'm going to get them to the lab one week after. I'm going to measure their serum progesterone. I want to see this about 15 or higher. If I see that it's low, then we have to figure out, is it that your progesterone isn't being produced? It's not raising to a level that's adequate? Or sometimes what we'll see is if that corpus luteum isn't very healthy, it makes good progesterone but then it drops off really quickly. The corpus luteum will make a lot of progesterone, but then it will waste away. And so the progesterone will drop off. And this is something I see with patients who have what we call a biochemical pregnancy where, you know, maybe they test very early and they get a positive pregnancy test, but then two or three days later, they start bleeding just like it was their period. Maybe it's that they're making progesterone, but then it's falling off so quickly that it can't maintain that pregnancy. So luteal phase dysfunction is one of the most common patterns I see that's generally characterized by low progesterone. And so do you have suggestions for people to increase their progesterone? Yeah. So it really goes to the work that we do in the follicular phase, which is the first half of the cycle. So I'm always for example, monitoring thyroid hormone. We know that patients who have hypothyroidism can sometimes struggle with poor follicular development or poor maturation of that corpus luteum because the cells that make that corpus luteum, they're called granulosa cells. They're one of my most favorite cells of the body. I call them the ovarian helper cells. They really receive hormonal signals from the brain. They keep our egg cells nourished. When we have hypothyroidism, those cells don't activate. So they don't receive hormonal signals from the brain as effectively in order to mature. So patients with hypothyroidism have more anovulatory cycles and sometimes less maturation of that corpus luteum. So we got to screen for thyroid dysfunction. We also know that DHEA, if someone has a low DHEA, it can also impact the way that that follicle develops. So I'm also measuring DHEA on my preconception lab panel. If someone has low antioxidant status, that will affect the health of the follicle. So I'm really focusing on brightly colored fruits and vegetables, adding some supplementary antioxidants if we need to, things like vitamins A, C, E, zinc, selenium, and then of course the blood supply piece. So making sure that they have that good pelvic blood flow. Sometimes someone is doing all of those things and we still need a little extra boost. So in my practice, I will sometimes prescribe a progesterone. I use bioidentical progesterone. Oftentimes I'm doing that vaginally. So they are taking an ovulation predictor kit, which is a urinary test that detects luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone is our trigger for ovulation and we can detect it in the urine. So they're taking that test. When it's positive, they know that they'll ovulate within the next probably 24 to 36 hours. They're ovulating, we're waiting three days after that, and then we're bringing on some bioidentical progesterone that can support that luteal phase while we continue to do all the lifestyle things that we know will ultimately support them best. 
That's incredible. Such good info and advice. So that's just one of your three hormonal that's imbalances, right? I'll try to move more quickly through the other two because I know we have so much to talk about, but it's fun. So the other one, and we kind of touched on this already, it's low thyroid function. We can't forget that thyroid is so integral to our hormone production. So in the functional medicine model, we teach and we practice to support hormones to go adrenal, thyroid, sex hormones, because our adrenal function can impact the way that we produce thyroid hormones. And then our thyroid hormones can impact the way that we make our sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. So when we have low levels of thyroid hormone, this can really disrupt the communication between the brain and the ovary that can interfere with ovulation and can also lead to pregnancy complications like preeclampsia, low birth weight, these adverse effects that we'd like to avoid. So thyroid screening is one of my very first steps in a comprehensive preconception evaluation. When my patients come, if they haven't had lab work, that's one of the first things we're measuring. And I'll just tell you, because I know that a lot of people go to their doctor and they ask for a thyroid assessment. And all that they're receiving is what's called a TSH or a thyroid stimulating hormone. That's the message that goes from the brain to the thyroid gland to tell the thyroid to make thyroid hormone. But for whatever reason, the thyroid gland could choose not to listen to that message. So we also have to measure the levels of free thyroid hormone. So I measure free T3 and free T4. I also then screen for thyroid antibodies. So we know that autoimmune thyroiditis is of the most common cause that someone will have low thyroid function. And it's pretty common. I mean, autoimmune thyroid disease is relatively common, especially in women. And even when someone has normal thyroid hormone levels, if they have thyroid antibodies, we see that they can have increased risk for things like early pregnancy loss. So I'm always doing a really comprehensive thyroid screening. So that's pattern number two. Okay, which I'm so glad you said all of that because a lot of doctors don't use all the thyroid tests that are out there. So thank you. Number three now. (laughs) Number three is insulin resistance. And I know this sometimes comes as a surprise, but insulin is a hormone too. So insulin resistance is a hormone imbalance pattern as well. Um, Insulin resistance is one of the most important drivers of PCOS, which is a condition that's characterized by elevated testosterone production in the ovaries. So when we have hyperinsulinemia, it can cause these cells called theca cells in our ovaries to get bigger and they produce testosterone. So we have more and more testosterone, which can impact our ovulation. And then the other thing that insulin can do is that it can upregulate this enzyme in our body that's called aromatase. And aromatase irreversibly converts testosterone to estrogen. So sometimes patients will come in and they, let's say they have PCOS, they have a lot of testosterone, but they'll also have all of these symptoms of um, estrogen excess. So things like heavy bleeding, a lot of breast tenderness, mood swings. And they'll say, how is it possible that I have like testosterone elevation and estrogen dominance? That seems unfair that I have two hormones that are super elevated but it's because the insulin is causing us to produce all of this testosterone, which means we have more in our pool available to then turn into estrogen through the aromatase enzyme. So it's kind of this vicious cycle where we're not ovulating, so we're not making progesterone, and we have too little progesterone, too much estrogen, too much testosterone, and we have to kind of unwind this all back to the insulin piece and really work on reducing insulin levels in the bloodstream and making our cells more sensitive to insulin's messages. 
Well, I have a lot of followers that deal with PCOS, and I know just because they DM me and ask me questions, but this insulin resistance is actually a great segue into inflammation because can't insulin resistance contribute to inflammation as well as our diet and our stress and our sleep? Absolutely. You nailed it. I mean, insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, which means lots of insulin in the bloodstream, I would say is one of the most important drivers of both inflammation and oxidative stress, hmm. which I talked about as two of my usual suspects when someone is experiencing subfertility. So yes, it's so important for all of those reasons. Okay. So if you have someone that's dealing with PCOS and they've got this insulin resistance, what are some tips to help them reverse that insulin resistance? And what are some tips to help reduce inflammation? Let's talk about both, but separately. So with PCOS, I think it's important that we always start with that lifestyle piece. So nutrition is going to be a huge piece here. And I think it's always um, when someone receives the diagnosis of PCOS, they start to worry that they're never going to be able to eat carbohydrate again, right? I think that's very much in the media of like, carbohydrates are off the table for you and you can never have them again. The carbohydrates are, are actually so important in terms of maintaining our energy balance and keeping us ovulatory, but we have to, we have to, um, consume them in a way that doesn't spike our blood sugar. So I always say, and I think that a lot of people say this now, like no naked carbs. So we're mixing our carbohydrates with fat and fiber to slow the release of glucose into our bloodstream because our blood glucose increases, you know, after we eat. And then it's insulin's job to come in uh, and tell our cells, especially in, you know, big tissues like our, our muscles, to bring the glucose in from our bloodstream. So when glucose goes up, insulin is going to go up. So one way that we can prevent hyperinsulinemia is by preventing big spikes of glucose. So mixing our carbohydrates with fat and fiber. And that means if you love potatoes, that's a bit, I love potatoes. If you're someone who loves potatoes, that's fine. Let's mix them with some, let's have some avocado with them, or let's put butter, let's use some butter and add that fat source. Or if you love apples, that's great. Let's have your apple with some almond butter. There's so many ways that we can maintain the foods that we enjoy, which I think is absolutely important. So mixing carbs with fat and fiber. The other thing that I think is really important is adding in some resistant starch. So resistant starch is another way that we can slow the release of glucose into our bloodstream. And what's fascinating is Let's say that you love sweet potatoes, as I do. If you bake your sweet potato and then allow it to cool to room temperature, the fiber will crystallize in a different way in that sweet potato. And now it becomes a resistant starch that actually has some protective qualities in your blood sugar. So it's just these little hacks that allow us to both feed our beneficial bacteria in our gut with fiber sources, but also reduce impact on our blood sugar. Okay, you said eating a fat or fiber with your carbs. What about eating a protein with your carbs? Absolutely. Protein okay. Protein is essential and we're going to focus on protein at every meal. Protein will absolutely help. I think when we look at how quickly the food will be absorbed, fat is really my favorite thing to add to slow that rate of glucose into the bloodstream. But yes, protein, fat, fiber, all of that's going to be helpful. Okay, perfect. And then you were going to say something else. 
Omega-3 fatty acids, that's something that is really helpful and can help improve our insulin sensitivity. And then the other piece, because I'm always going to draw it back to lifestyle, is eating in a peaceful environment. I think we're so prone to eating in front of the computer, eating in front of the TV screen, eating while we're driving. And we know that when we're in this state of stress, we can increase our stress hormone cortisol. And cortisol essentially functions to increase our blood sugar. So I tell patients, not only are we going to focus on these foods that are deeply nourishing to your body, but also having them in an environment that is equally as nourishing. So can we set the dinner table and maybe light a candle and have some nice music? What's going to make your nervous system feel safe and relaxed and calm so that you can take these nutrients into your body? I love that. And I heard someone say once, it's as simple as maybe even just pausing before you eat and like smelling the food to get those enzymes going and just taking a big breath and maybe just saying a little prayer of gratitude over the food or being grateful for the food. And that's enough to just calm down that nervous system enough to, you know, let the enzymes and digestive enzymes and things do its job to digest our food better. I love it. Co-signed on that approach. It's beautiful. <laughs> okay. So those are great tips for insulin resistance. So for inflammation, because so many people whether they're trying to get pregnant or not, are actually dealing with inflammation. So are the tips the same or something different for inflammation? Inflammation is one of my favorite topics. Sometimes I think naturopathic doctors, functional medicine doctors, we're inflammologists because inflammation is a driver of so many conditions that it's something we really focus on. So first things first, I want to know or have a little bit of an understanding of what, where is this inflammation coming from? And I can't always figure it out. I'll just be really honest. I can't always find the root, but I like to look. So again, we mentioned insulin resistance can drive inflammation. I also like to look at my patient's gums and ask them, have you been to the dentist recently? Because um, periodontal disease is actually a really important driver of fertility and of a subfertility. When we have inflammation in our gums, that can actually enter our systemic circulation. And there's been really interesting research looking at how when there's, for example, a bacterial infection in our gums, those bacteria can show up in the placenta of mothers who were pregnant and maybe had to deliver early. Maybe they had a preterm delivery because they had something like hypertension. Wow. Because of all the inflammation, we see this pathogens kind of traversing from inside their mouth into the placenta. We also see that in the endometrium. So really looking in the mouth. The other thing is the gut. The gut is a significant source of inflammation, whether that's from an imbalance in our gut bacteria or we have intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut. When that happens, we have proteins that are supposed to stay inside our gut, but we have this compromised barrier function. So those proteins can traverse our intestinal barrier. They can enter systemic circulation where we even see that they can cause inflammation inside the ovary itself. So we have seen this connection between a leaky gut and impaired progesterone production in the ovary because there's so much inflammation of the ovarian tissue. I think that's actually really interesting about the gut because I always talk about the gut on my page, but more of the brain connection, you know, and with anxiety, depression, but rarely do I ever talk about the gut and infertility. So that is fascinating. 
there's a huge connection there that I'd love to dive into, but that is really a, an important contributor to inflammation. So first I'm looking at that. Sometimes people ask me how they know if they have chronic inflammation. And there's a couple different ways that we can make some judgment calls about this. Symptomatically, we might see someone that has a lot of rashes. They have a lot of food sensitivities, bloating, swelling, water retention. Those are all signs of increased inflammatory burden. I also like to do blood work. So my favorite inflammatory biomarker is something called high sensitivity C-reactive protein or HSCRP. You can get this at any standard lab. Like this isn't fancy or mysterious. It's it's very standard. I'm ordering that in all of my patients. I like to see that below one. The reference range goes up to three. I like to see it below one. That's most protective for cardiovascular outcomes too, by the way. So super important to think about. And then when it comes time to treat, if we see chronic inflammation, obviously addressing all these underlying factors is important. But then I'm also calling upon some you know, nutraceuticals like curcumin, which is the active constituent, the anti-inflammatory constituent in turmeric. I think a lot of people love that. I use that in supplement form. Quercetin, cinnamon, these are all excellent anti-inflammatory nutrients. Sometimes I'll also, in the right person, I will utilize a comprehensive elimination diet where we have a pretty restrictive food plan for three weeks because we know that if someone has antibodies to a food, if they're sensitive to a food, that in three weeks time, we can decrease those antibodies by 50% wow. if they're avoiding that food. Pretty, pretty significant. So it's likely that we'll see some symptom improvement. Then systematically, we start adding those foods back so that we can identify that patient's unique food triggers. The ultimate goal is to get as much diversity back into the diet as possible. But, you know, maybe you know that you didn't tolerate strawberries well, or you didn't tolerate eggs. And so this gives us some specificity in what your food triggers are. So it's a combination of diet, lifestyle, nutraceuticals, and doing some homework to figure out where that inflammation is coming from. Yeah. And there's so many things that we eat on a daily basis, like too much sugar, inflammatory oils, things that can affect the gut and affect inflammation as well, right? Is that a contributing problem? Absolutely. And it's things like, I don't want to, I never want to um, villainize fried foods, but this is something I think about because not only are they highly inflammatory, but they also contain these compounds that are called advanced glycation end products or ages. And I'm going to link this back to our PCOS conversation because when we have a lot of these advanced glycation end products in our system, they can actually accumulate in that follicular fluid, that soup that our egg cells are swimming in that I talked about. And we can it leads to cellular damage. So sometimes we see the research has borne this, this connection between PCOS and advanced glycation end products because it is making our egg cells more resistant to hormonal signals from the brain. So I'm always thinking about, I mean, for anyone who's trying to conceive, but especially for those with PCOS, what are these inflammatory drivers in your diet? And do we have this extra layer of ages? So interesting. Okay. So about inflammation and the gut, two questions. Do you recommend an omega-3 supplement or getting more omega-3s? Because I know that can lower inflammation. And two, for the gut, do you recommend probiotics, prebiotics, things like that? Yeah. 
Thank you for mentioning omega-3s. I didn't say that earlier, but one of the most important anti-inflammatory nutrients. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, omega-3s are super important for uh, supporting our insulin sensitivity, for reducing inflammation, for keeping our cell membranes healthy. And I'm going to just do a shout out to sperm here too, because um, omega-3s can really help to keep sperm cell membranes healthy as well. And that's really important to have them be mobile. So good swimmers allow them to fertilize an egg. So this really goes both ways. All of these supplements can really be utilized by both partners. But yes, the gut, I think that there's two different pathways I think about in terms of the connection between gut health and fertility. So number one, we've already talked about leaky gut um, and how this can lead to systemic inflammation, which can cause ovarian and endometrial inflammation. It can impair our progesterone production. It has this negative impact on implantation. So I'm thinking about things like bone broth and zinc and butyrate and probiotics to help keep that intestinal barrier function healthy. The microbiome piece certainly comes into play, as you said, with the probiotics. And what's so interesting is all this research coming out that it's not just the microbiome in the gut, but there's also an endometrial microbiome. And for a long time, we thought that the environment inside the uterus was sterile, but now we know that it's actually populated by this complex constellation of microbes. And it's so fascinating because that composition seems to vary with the menstrual cycle. And we have different bacterial species dominating at different times, probably to kind of modulate immune function within the ovary and at the right time, make it most receptive to implantation. So, so much to talk about there. That is really interesting. Yeah, we could talk about inflammation and gut and nutrition for an entire show, but I'm going to move on to a different topic if you're okay with that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I want to talk about environmental factors, but I also want to talk about the parabens and phthalates that are in beauty products, those endocrine disruptors. It's becoming a very trendy topic. And so I get some people that will be like, this is so ridiculous, a little bit of lotion little bit of perfume, whatever, that's not affecting my hormones. So let's just talk about these things. Beauty products, are they affecting our hormones? I mean, you said it, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And now all of a sudden our ability to detoxify those compounds is totally compromised. So I hear this all the time too, but the fact of the matter is just by being alive and producing energy, we're creating some toxicity in our body that our liver is absolutely capable of dealing with and that's fine. We go outside, we breathe the air, there's a little bit of toxic exposures, our body is designed to take care of that. But then once we add the hundreds of chemicals that we're putting on our body every day from our hair care, our skin care, the products that we're using to clean our house, now there's a cumulative effect. So you're right, maybe a little bit of this lotion or a little bit of this shampoo isn't gonna be a big deal, but we don't operate like that in the real world, right? We're using tons of things in our house on our body every day. So it's this cumulative effect. And I think it's really common that we talk about it like a bucket. You know, you have this bucket and we're filling it with toxic exposures all day long. And as long as we're draining that bucket regularly, it's okay. We can remain healthy. But once that bucket overfills, then we become symptomatic and it's more and more challenging to drain the bucket. And you talk about this all the time and you do a beautiful job of spreading the word about endocrine disrupting chemicals, how it can affect the way that we 
produce hormones. It can affect our cells' sensitivity to those hormones. It can damage DNA in both eggs and sperm. So it's super important in every one of my preconception patients, we're doing an inventory, a toxic exposure questionnaire, and we are identifying their most important sources of toxic exposure and really addressing it from the get-go. I love that you do that. Like I said earlier in the show, there's not many doctors that do that. So thank you for doing that and educating the patients on that. And one thing I want to mention is a lot of times the men will be like, that's for my wife or my spouse or my partner. That is not for me. I don't have to deal with that. But these endocrine disruptors and these beauty products are affecting men as well, correct? That is absolutely correct. Especially with phthalates, we see a lot of connection between phthalates and impaired male fertility. So those sperm are just as susceptible to the effects of toxic exposures as egg cells are. So this is a joint effort. And when I'm working with my patients, I'm having both parties really take an inventory of what they're putting on their skin, on their body, what's being used in the house, the food supply. Because if we're really going to have the best outcome with the healthiest sperm possible and the healthiest egg cell possible, both partners really have to work to reduce their total body burden. Okay. And let me just ask you one question about endocrine disruptors. They basically are mimicking our true hormones. So then our true hormones can't actually do their proper job that they need to do. Correct? That's the problem with what we call xenoestrogens, right? That they look so similar to our our natural estrogen, but they're much more potent in a lot of ways. So they're binding to our estrogen receptors and activating them to an even greater degree. So this is absolutely something, again, that's not only for our fertility and our reproductive health, but about reducing risk for chronic disease later. And it's so important to teach this to our younger kids. I was just thinking like, these 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, they need to learn this at an early age to let's find the beauty products without all of these endocrine disruptors in it. Yes, you're doing a great job of that. And as a mother of two young women, absolutely. This is the time. Let's teach them. Okay. I have a question for you because I have actually a couple good friends that they've dealt with infertility for years. They have tried a lot of this that you've talked about. They've tried a lot of what I talk about on my page And so is there just like an unexplainable infertility that happens that doctors just can't put their finger on? And so they just struggle with this for years and years? I mean, unexplained infertility has to be the most frustrating diagnosis because to just be told, well, it's not working, but no one knows why, it's so disheartening. So um, let me just say unexplained infertility means at least one fallopian tube is open, that ovulation is confirmed, and that there's been an adequate semen analysis. Where my perspective is, is all of that can be true. You can have at least one fallopian tube open, confirmed ovulation, and adequate semen analysis, but you could then also have low thyroid function that no one has looked into, or you could have very low iron that no one has measured, lots of oxidative stress and inflammation like we've talked about. So unexplained infertility, I think where I really struggle is that oftentimes that's the end of the investigation. It's like, well, we did the conventional monitoring parameters and that looked good. And now we're not curious anymore. And the investigation ends here and best of luck to you. And that's so frustrating to me because we know that oftentimes in the setting of unexplained infertility, there's poor gut health, there's nutritional insufficiencies, 
there's toxic exposure, there's altered immune activity, there's low progesterone or thyroid issues or adrenal dysfunction. And when we start to correct these clinical imbalances, we find homeostasis in our hormonal production and oftentimes fertility can be restored. And so patients will come to me and I'm their last resort. They feel like they have tried everything. They said, I've done every test. I've seen every doc. I'm so frustrated and I feel like I'm just never going to be a parent. And then I show them my functional medicine matrix and I say, well, we've not investigated this body system or this one or this one. There's so many stones that are still yet to be turned over. It's so inspiring and it gives hope. And sure, there are people that even with all of these things, we aren't going to be able to figure it out. But I think the point is, as a fertility practitioner, I feel obligated to remain curious, to keep asking questions and to look at these body systems in a comprehensive and systematic way. I love that. I love everything you said. And thank you for not giving up on them. That is what's frustrating to me too, is because they have to go to doctor after doctor because doctors will tell them, oh, there's nothing else we can do for you. And so they go search for somebody else. And I'm like, that's just a, such a sad statement to these people that are trying. So thank you for still being curious and trying to figure out what it is. So for those that are listening and maybe wanting to conceive soon or, you know, in a year, whatever that is, are there tips that you give people that are maybe thinking about conceiving of things that they should do now to help in the process? Yes, I love this question. So first step is if you haven't been engaging with your own menstrual cycle, now is the time. Start tracking your cycle. There's tons of apps available, or maybe you have an aura ring. Whatever it is that you want to use to monitor, start tracking your cycle so that you can understand your own pattern. So I like to see a cycle that is pretty consistent month to month, doesn't differ by more than five days. I like to see, again, a luteal phase. So that's after you ovulate until your next period that's longer than 12 days. Once you start tracking and you get to know your own body systems, it's easy for you to identify if something is suboptimal. And then you have the information to bring to your doctor. So start tracking your cycle. Get on a high quality prenatal vitamin that is essential. And I usually tell people, you know, the time that you take from an egg cell that's immature to develop into an egg that is large enough to ovulate, that takes about 120 days. So if we can be on a high quality prenatal vitamin even six months before we're trying to conceive, then we're really doing ourselves a good service to make sure that we're meeting any nutritional gaps. So tracking your cycle, getting on a prenatal vitamin. And then I love when I have the ability to do preconception lab work with my patients. And I always say like, we plan for our wedding months and months, maybe a year or more in advance. I would love to plan for conception in the same way. So I have a big preconception panel that I like to do that looks at our sex hormones, our thyroid function, metabolic markers, nutritional markers, infectious markers. We can look at the gut and adrenal function if we need to. And if we do that for six, 12 months ahead of when you really want to get pregnant, it gives us time to identify any imbalances that are there. So prenatal vitamin, track your cycle, do your lab work. I love that advice. And I love that whole analogy with a wedding that you plan for months before a wedding. Why not before you conceive? Such good advice. But I know that everybody who's listening who should go on a prenatal is going to say, but what's a good quality prenatal? So do you have one that you love? And my question is, it's so confusing out there on prenatals because people are saying, oh, this has um, folic acid in it, not folate. So don't take this one. And this one has synthetic vitamins or this one 
you know, there's a lot of noise out there about prenatals. So what do you suggest to people? Yeah, well, I can tell you what I'm taking, what's on my counter right now. Um, I'm taking the prenatal vitamins from Needed, the company Needed, which I know you featured on your show before too. And what I love about them is that they have conducted really extensive research to ensure that their prenatal vitamin is utilizing the correct nutrients at the correct therapeutic dosage. And the other piece that I love about it is that the vitamins, the prenatal vitamins come in capsules or powder. And I know that when I was pregnant, I was so sick and taking the capsules was just not going to work for me. And then I had so much guilt about not taking my prenatal vitamin or not being able to keep it down. So I really trust the nutrients and the dosages. And then I really appreciate the flexibility to be able to take capsules or the powdered form. Well, I love that you shared a company that I love also. And in fact, I'm going to have their owner on my show one of these days soon. So I love that you said that. Well, I have so many more questions that I could ask you. You just are a wealth of knowledge. And I'm like, I could go for an hour more, but maybe one day you could be back on the show. So thank you so much for everything you've answered. But tell my listeners where they can find you, because I know they're going to want to hear more from you. The best way is on Instagram. I'm there almost every day posting fertility tips. You can also head to my website at drkaleawaddles.com where we can talk about my one-on-one, my group offerings, and my online program, The Functional Fertility Blueprint. So find me on Instagram at Functional Fertility. And do you still take patients? I am taking patients. Yep. Okay. Because I get that asked every time I have doctors on the show. Also, I close my show with asking everybody what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? The best ingredient to life. So I'm going to say that it is actually freedom. And I'll explain what I mean. Someone asked me a few years ago, like, what does optimal health mean to you? What does that feel like to you? And it was freedom because when we have abundance in our health, We have the freedom to pursue the things that give us meaning and purpose in life. We have the freedom to show up for our loved ones, the freedom to do what we were uniquely designed to do and offer the world. So these investments that we make in ourselves, in our wellness every day, I think ultimately give us the freedom to fulfill our greatest hopes and desires. And that is the ultimate good feeling is freedom. Oh my goodness. I absolutely love that because... That actually might be my favorite word out of all the guests that have been on because I get that, but I relate with it with depression and anxiety. When I was in the depths of depression, I did not have that freedom to do the things that I was meant to do here on this earth or, you know, the freedom to spend quality time with my kids and my husband or, I mean, the freedom for so many things because I was just in the depths of not feeling good. And so I love that you shared that. Thank you so much. I just want to ask one last thing, because I know I will have a lot of people listening that are dealing with infertility. I mean, you've given lots of tips and lots of information, but do you have any final words or tips for those that are in the depths of dealing with infertility right now? Mm -hmm. I think it goes back to the part of remaining curious and We know that when you're working with a provider, part of the experience is the therapeutic encounter and the therapeutic partnership, and that that in and of itself can contribute to your healing process. So you mentioned a lot of times you kind of have to shop around for doctors, and I know that that part can can feel defeating. 
But if you can find a practitioner that is willing to partner with you in your health journey, rather than telling you what to do, but allowing and really creating space for you to actively participate in your own health, to have some autonomy and to make decisions about your path and your journey, I think is ultimately going to serve your fertility so well. So, I mean, obviously I'm a functional medicine doctor and I really deeply believe in the functional medicine model. And I always tell people, there's probably someone near you. If you want to search the Institute for Functional Medicine website at ifm.org, there's probably someone near you who is willing to do this deep dive and to look at your body systems and to really treat you as a whole complex person, which we all are. Sometimes it's hard to advocate for yourself, but stay the course. Find a practitioner who's willing to remain curious and take good care of yourself. I love that advice. Thank you so much for being on the show today, but just not being on the show. Thank you for being the doctor that you are and for helping these couples that just really want to bring a child to this earth and who are just struggling so much. Thank you for being curious with them. Thank you for helping them. You are just such a wealth of knowledge and I so appreciate you being here today. And I know this podcast will help so many that are struggling. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram. <laughs>